0: Well, good morning. As Brian said, my name is Trevor. I'm one of the pastors here. If you would, would not you turn your Bible to Ruth, chapter 4. I'm finishing this great Old Testament book today, Ruth, chapter 4. To read along with me? Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. And if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not... Uh, But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, well, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, well, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his uh, sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders of all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the wife of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And then all the people who were at the gate and the elder said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel, and he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram, and Ram fathered Aminadab, and Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon, and Salmon fathered Boaz, and Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this morning, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight today, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the most important lessons for learning to read the Bible is to read in context. Failing to do so wrecks havoc on our understanding of individual verses, of chapters, even of whole books. I've seen where books fit within the canon. And the most common mistake is that we have a tendency, we, we all live in thought chambers. And so we have a tendency to read a verse and it causes us to think in line with a certain thing. And so we get good at collecting verses and building a theology. And we have to always submit that back to that text, in that context, in that book, in that testament, in that canon. And that's what we're always working at. So we'll do a little thought experiment this morning. This was done years ago. um, And what happened is a, a group of people came in, and this paragraph was read to them. You're supposed to think about what it is that this paragraph is discussing. The procedure is actually quite simple. First, you arrange things into different groups. Of course, one pile may be sufficient, depending on how much there is to do. If you have to go somewhere else due to the lack of facilities, that is the next step. Otherwise, you're pretty well set. It is important not to overdo things. That is, it is better to do too few things at once than too many. In the short run, this may not seem important, but complications can easily arise, and a mistake can be expensive as well. At first, the whole procedure will seem complicated. Soon, however, it will become just another facet of life. It is difficult to foresee any end to the necessity for this task in the immediate future, but then one never can tell. After the procedure is completed, one arranges the materials into different groups again, and they can be put in their appropriate places. Eventually, they will be used once more, and the whole cycle will then have to be repeated. However, that is a part of life. What are we talking about? Could be a number of things. Could it not? Could be a whole number of things that you could apply that paragraph to. But if I say to you, oh, by the way, this is the process for washing clothes, Start to go, oh, yeah, if you don't have facilities, you got to go somewhere else. Oh, yeah, it repeats itself forever. And for those of you with lots of kids, it daily repeats itself forever. Context is king. It explains. And so this morning, our hope, as we close off this book of Ruth, is to tie together some streams that have been running through this book to hopefully give you a picture of what Ruth is as a story, what it's doing in its place in the canon, or in the Old Testament in particular, and then in the canon as a whole. So with that, we will look at this chapter 4. Under these four headings, you see the nameless redeemer in 1 through 6, Boaz the redeemer in 7 through 12, and the unexpected redeemer in 13 through 22. Now, side note, the structure of this chapter is actually two parts. It's 1 through 12 and 13 through 22. That's how it's broken. But I split the first one in half because there's two parts of the redeemer language, which keeps getting repeated in this chapter. That's why we're doing that. So look once again at verses 1 through 6. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who came back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people." If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. And then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So as Boaz promised, the end of chapter 3, he promised Ruth that he was going to go and take care of the thing right away. Naomi was so confident it will be taken care of, and it seems this is the first thing Boaz does. He heads into town, and kind of like we saw in, in chapter 2, it just so happened that the other redeemer happened to be walking right by there. And he says, turn aside, friend in the ESV, many, many English translations say that, but as you start to collect English translations, this word gets translated all sorts of ways. Many of a friend or my friend. The CSB doesn't translate it at all. It's just like, come here. Um, The New English Translation has kind of a cheeky way of translating the Hebrew. Come here and sit down, John Doe. Uh, The JPS, the Jerusalem Bible, it says this. Uh, It says, hey, you. Uh, The reason for this difference is because the Hebrew is not super clear. Whenever English translations disagree, it's probably because there's something in the Hebrew that's a little challenging. Perhaps the best uh, translation, and many commentators have noticed this, is Such and such, or my preferred one is Mr. So-and-so. Hey, Mr. So-and-so, come here and sit down. Uh, Now, the reason for that is because, as Matthew did a great job of the first week, is this is a book where names matter. Every name ties into their story of who they are and what's about them. So we're being told right up front, this is Mr. So-and-so. This is Mr. So-and-so who's very forgetful, who you don't really care about him because he's not going to matter in just a couple minutes. So that's why it, it's here. So, what's in a name? Well, for Mr. So and So, nothing because we don't know his name. So, his refusal to engage fits right in with the narrative. He's easy come, easy go. He's quickly forgotten. And Boaz here seeks to do exactly what he said. He is after the fulfillment of the, the the letter of the law, but also the spirit of the law. Remember last chapter, uh, Ruth proposed to him, and so now he has responded. And he goes here to say, hey, are you going to redeem this woman? Now, this is where Boaz is incredibly shrewd, because he goes and says, you want to redeem this land, because that's what was required by law, to, prop- to perpetrate, or, or, perpetuate a heir, right? That's what he said for the son. But the Mr. So-and-so is sitting there going like, Naomi's old. She doesn't have any more kids, so she doesn't have any daughters, so there's no, there's no one to perpetuate. So yeah, I'll buy that field. And Boaz says, oh, yes, good. And the day you get it, you also get Ruth the Moabite. Now, that wasn't actually in the law. What Deuteronomy uh, actually says is that that would be for the brother, Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. A brother would have to do that, but not necessarily a a relative like this. So Boaz is ratcheted up, and he's done so with all these witnesses pulled around him. Oh, great, yeah, when when you buy the field, naturally you're going to provide for the wife of Malon because his heir is the one who gets that field, right? And so you see Boaz with his shrewdness, and Mr. So-and-so responds, Oh, no, actually, that's not... That, that's not quite where I was going with that. And so he backs out. And the reason why is questionable. It could have been a financial thing. In his mind, he's thinking, if I buy this field, then I get to farm it forever and pass it on. But now that Ruth's been engaged and you have to raise up an heir, he's going to lose that field because it'll go back to the heir. It could have been the fact that Boaz uses the whole name, Ruth, the Moabite, because that was pretty forbidden. And so we don't know exactly why, but it doesn't matter because he's Mr. So-and-so. Easy come, easy go. So Boaz here is contrasted. You get, you get a foil that's taking place in the story. Boaz is seen as this clearly man of valor. He's, he's going after not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Whereas uh, Mr. So-and-so only cares about checking the box. And this is why we read from Luke chapter 14 earlier. Because Jesus is going to take this same type of idea and bind it to the idea of discipleship. And he's saying that those who are disciples must count the cost, that they have to be willing to do so. It's not a matter of checking the box in the law or checking the box of of certain things that Christians do. No, Jesus is after the heart. And so that's why we read from Luke. Here's just a couple of the verses we read earlier in the service. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, yes, even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. That's an incredibly high bar. The section closes with him saying, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus sets an incredibly high bar. Far, far, far above any letter of the law type of discipleship. And that's what you're seeing played out in the example of this foil between Boaz and Mr. So-and-so. But oftentimes, the response can be, when you, when you read Jesus' words there, in particular, this example of what true discipleship looks like, is, that just sounds pretty re- legalistic. It's so, I thought Christianity was about a relationship. That, that's a bunch of rules, is it not? Well, I would say that over and over again, throughout the Bible, and particularly that it's sharpened in the New Testament, is this idea that those who are saved by grace alone are saved by faith, with a faith that is never alone. That faith always works itself out in love, first in love for God and then in love for our neighbors. And it's funny because we often sing these truths very willingly, but when it comes down to living them out, sometimes that becomes a little harder. So we joyously sing, oh, the wonderful cross, oh, the wonderful cross, it bids me to come and die and find that I may truly live. Sometimes it's hard to die to all the things that we think about in life as as important. Maybe those aren't important in the grand scheme of things. He continues on in that wonderful song, love so amazing, so divine, and because this love is that way, it demands my soul, my life, my all. So we sing these truths, we're very familiar with them, and these are the fruit of faith, as it were. So by way of application, what does this look like in our lives as a church? First of all, our love for God. How is your love for God? Is it growing? Maybe to use some of the biblical categories, is your love for God causing you to move beyond the milk of the word and into the meat of the word? Is that where your love of God is taking you? It's a well-worn illustration, but it's so helpful. Anybody that you love, you want to know about them. My, my dearest friends who I don't see, I, I, I check in with them. How are you? How have you been? It might have been two days since I talked to them or two weeks or two years, but I'm always wanting more information about them. And the same is true, or should be true, for our relationship with God. Does our love for God work itself out in longing to know him more, to know him better? A couple of practical ways you can do that. We announced a systematic theology class is going on. If, if you've been one of those people, you're like, I, I want to know more, but I just haven't quite. Uh, it's hard to find the time. That's a great opportunity to, to come and just to dig in and learn more. Or maybe you're doing that in triad or in community group, and if so, praise God. But would this be a year where you're convinced That knowing God more, loving him more, is moving beyond. It's the the fruit of faith as worked out. And then the second way, of course, is loving God and loving others. And so the way we might put this is that wouldn't we say that the best way to love others is to love them towards Christ? To love them towards Jesus? So are you prioritizing discipling relationships? By discipling, I mean seeking to do intentional spiritual good to someone else. What does that look like? Uh, if you're not in a triad or a community group, friends, I just want to encourage you, that is where life happens. That is where loving others happens so often. Or maybe this would come up in evangelism. What are those evangelistic relationships that are, you're working out in your life? Who are those people you're getting to know and build relationships with? And both of those things, loving others by helping them love God and evangelizing them, is absolutely what parents do with their children. You are discipling and evangelizing. You're catechizing your kids. So those are some practical ways that we can work these out. So That's the first set of contrasts we get here between Boaz and Mr. So-and-so, this foil that kind of hits us right as we start off. But then there's going to be a second little passing contrast in our second point when we saw uh, Mr. So-and-so, the Redeemer, as it were, who's no Redeemer at all. And now we're going to move to Boaz, the Redeemer, in verses 7 through 12. To look at those with me? Also, Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And then all the people who were at the gate and the elder said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So, the narrator begins by explaining this custom. Now we know because of the end of the book that this Ruth was written at least after David, because it knows David's coming and he's king. And so it's, it's giving you kind of a back in time, a history of what happened back there. And the narrator explains, they used to do this. Did you catch that? They, the way they used to settle deals was you'd take off your sandal and hand it to a guy. Just a little side note, the Bible happened in space-time history. Which means that one of the ways to understand the Bible is we have to get into the mind of the original writers, into their history. How would they have understood this? And even in the writing of Ruth, the author realizes, oh, This has been a couple hundred years, hundred years. They don't know about that custom. I have to fill them in. So that's part of the ways that we learn and grow is we have to read and understand the history of the time and the culture as well. But that's a first little side note for you. A great little helps for these are study Bibles. The ESV Study Bible or the NIV, Biblical Theology Study Bible, are great tools to give you some of that background information. I highly recommend both of those. But looking closer at Boaz's response in verse 10, he starts off by saying he's taking Ruth to be his wife, but then the reasons he gives are a little startling. Did you catch that? Those are purpose clauses. This is his intended aim that he gives there in verse 10. He says, I'm going to marry Ruth to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from, the nat- from among his brothers, and, so that also, from the gate of his native place. He does not say anything about Ruth, about loving her, about marrying her. His reasons are bound up, it seems, at least his explicit reasons, are bound up with the fact that he is honoring the spirit of the law, which was that God gave the people a plot of land, and those people were to perpetually have it. And he's going back and saying the spirit of the law was that there would always be an heir on that land. So I'm going to give an heir to carry on his name, to keep that land, to continue to have a voice at the gate of the people. Now, commentators disagree about how much love story is supposed to be in Ruth. And there are some arguments on both sides of how to see it. But it is interesting to note that the word love only occurs one time in the whole book. And it's in verse 15, speaking of Ruth's love for Naomi. So that's an interesting little side note. That's not to say that Boaz wasn't going to love her. He's clearly a a godly, honorable man, so I'm sure he would. And there might be an argument for it. But his point is saying he cares so deeply about the law of God that he wants to make sure that down to the very last bit of the spirit and essence of it, that he will fulfill it. That's what he says explicitly. And so with the transaction complete in front of the witnesses, then all of a sudden you get the witnesses' response, and their response is theologically loaded. So we'll spend a chunk of time thinking through this. Last week, Matthew noted something so important, and it's a theme that just ties this whole book together, and that is that God is hardly mentioned, and yet the whole story is about God's providential hand working through faithful people working through their faithful choices, that God's using real people and real choices to work out his purposes. And what's interesting here is verses 11 and 12 give us an example of this in a weird way. Because they say, the witnesses say, May the Lord make Ruth as some of the great matriarchs over Israel. But it's by looking at those matriarch stories that you start scratching your head a little bit. So first, the witnesses say, I hope Ruth will be like Leah and Rachel who raised up Israel. Well, that's not exactly how that happened. So see, what happened was, is that Jacob thought he was working for Rachel, and he ended up with Leah, and so then uh, that didn't go so well. So he works longer, he ends up getting, getting Rachel, and the two sisters are like, well, I want him to love me more, well, I want him to love-. So they end up giving him their handmaidens, and so he populates Israel through all four ladies. Oh, it wasn't exactly Rachel and Leah. What's the point? Is that God providentially works through even the sinful decisions of people. That God is working to build his people and for his purposes, even through all of these real consequential choices, even when they're really messed up and sinful. And then next he mentions Perez, the son of Tamar. And for anyone who knows that story, again, you're wondering why that's not a family secret that you just don't tell. But here's the background in case you're not familiar with it. So there's those 12 sons of Jacob, as it were, and the first three are shown in the next chapters of Genesis to all radically disqualify themselves from any sort of family leadership. It's just disaster after disaster. So in chapter 38 of Genesis, you get to consider Judah. And it opens up by talking about how Judah had three sons and his oldest son marries a Canaanite, which was forbidden. So we're not off to a great start here. And that son is so wicked that he says he sleeps with this Canaanite wife, but then he spills his seed on the ground, refusing to give her a son. And in their day, that was, that was your inheritance. That was the way you were going to continue to live, potentially, if, the, if the, particularly if your husband died. So God kills him for that wicked act. So Judah does what is the tradition, and he gives him the second son. The second son's just as wicked, does the same thing, and God kills him too. And at this point, Judah starts to think, maybe this Canaanite thing has got something to it. Maybe I shouldn't have let the boys marry her. I got another son. He's too young. Why don't you just wait? And a little time goes by, and you start to realize Tamar gets wise and says, Judah's just put me off. So she decides, I know how I'll solve this. I'm going to dress up like a prostitute, cover my face, and wait by the side of the road where I know he's coming. And so sure enough, he shows up. They haggle over a price. He doesn't have money. Well, give me your signet ring, and then you can send me payment later. Well, that encounter causes her to be pregnant with Perez and Zerah. Again, why wouldn't that be a family secret? I don't know. It gets worse. Judah then uh, hears that his daughter-in-law is pregnant. He says, great, we can kill her because she's immoral. Until she says, well, there's this little signet ring. This is the guy. And Judah is, is on the hook. But you see the reason why this is important to the story is that the witnesses are actually really wise. May God grow and keep his people even through brokenness of choices and decisions may God redeem may he in a way Judah redeemed Tamar in a really crooked broken way but regardless of the specific reasons the point here is quite clear we're getting a lesson in God's providence that God works all things out even through broken and sinful people here's what the 1689 second london baptist confession of faith explains as providence quote God the good creator of all things in his infinite power and wisdom does uphold direct dispose and govern all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence to the end for which they were created according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. We might summarize it like this. God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. He always has god draws straight lines with very crooked sticks and so perhaps you're here this morning and maybe you're not a christian and maybe you might i be able to identify with this story i hope you can because so often there can be these feelings of i could never be loved i have too much brokenness in my past There's too much that's wrong. I am too crooked for God to ever draw a straight line with. Well, that's why the stories of Rachel and Leah and Tamar are not family secrets that have been lost to time. And so, friend, I would just say, if, if you're here today and you have questions about what that would look like, about how God would go about drawing a straight line with your life, regardless of how crooked it is, I'd love to talk with you afterwards. I'll be out in the hall there. And then for us Christians... How should we understand this providence of God? Because it includes even the hardnesses. As Matt brought out so well last week. Is The book begins with a dark providence. Naomi doesn't waver by saying, this was God who did this to me. Friend, that theme goes throughout the Bible. Think of one of Jacob's sons, Joseph. Genesis fifty twenty. You brothers, yes, you sold me in slavery, but God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We could go on and on. Job is perhaps the most vivid book where this comes out. It's Job 19, 8 through 11. Job says, he, God, has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. He has set darkness upon my path. He has stripped me from my glory and taken the crown of my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone and my hope has been pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and he counts me as his adversary. Job understands. And yet, the beauty is that Job dared not edit this truth of providence because he goes on to say this. For I know my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in the flesh I will see my God. Because God is always in the business of drawing straight lines with crooked sticks. If this is an area that's been struggle for you as a Christian, here's just one scholar puts it so well. He said, Is our conception of God big enough to allow us to read Proverbs 16:4? The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked for the day of disaster, without secretly wishing that that text were excised from the Bible. For us Christians, that's how we need to wrestle with the doctrine of God's providence. So all of that to say, As if you've struggled with this idea of God's providential control. We have to see providence in the long game. And that's why the confession ends to his glory. The long game. It's bending all things around to his glory. What God is accomplishing in time. And that reality should give us incredible hope. Because friends, if you're anything like me, the longer you walk the Christian life, you don't look in the mirror and see all that better. (laughs) You see all the more sinfulness that is there. I use the illustration many times before. Is I feel for you, ladies. You ever walk into a mall and those makeup counters, like here, come with the makeup counter, and there's like you know seventy million candlelight lights that show in the fifty magnifying mirror that shows every possible imperfection. And that's the way as Christians we grow. We only see more imperfections, but God draws straight lines with crooked sticks, and that's what He is doing, working out His plan of redemption. Which brings us to our final section here, which is the unexpected redeemer. Read verses 13 through 17 with me. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than even seven sons, has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Did you catch? The next nine to twelve months are basically telescopes down into this one verse 13. When that happens, when a narrative speeds up or slows down, it's showing you something about what's important in this section. And basically, they're making that of very little importance. By the way, she got married, she had a kid, moving on. And they transition to Naomi. We'll get there for a second, but I want to correct a translation thing. Unfortunately, verse 13, many English translations translate this phrase, Boaz went into her. And it's, unfortunately, it's a bad translation. A literal reading would be, he went to her. It's a Hebrew idiom, and it means he went to her tent. To her marriage tent. It's not speaking about how consummation takes place. So you can explain that to your kids. That's not what's going on. He went to her. To her wedding tent. Consummated the marriage. That's what it's saying there. And after that brief announcement, we transition back to Naomi. And the focus is on Naomi. I mean, Ruth almost seems like she has nothing to do with the child. Naomi nurses him. They lay him on Naomi's lap. It's interesting. It switches right back. And particularly, one more time, we read this word, Redeemer is used. Now the women come around Naomi and they bless the Lord because he has given her a redeemer. And they ask that this redeemer's name would be blessed and renowned in Israel. And the redeemer they're speaking of is the child. The child has, in a sense, redeemed her. Now obviously the child didn't redeem her in the like technical legal sense, uh, like Boaz did, by buying and doing all that type of stuff. No. What are they referring to? Well, this draws us back to the beginning of the book, of course, that Naomi was redeemed in that she'd lost everything. Everything had been taken from her. She was left empty. But now, with the birth of a grandson and the incredible love, the one time it's used in the book, the love she receives from Ruth, better than seven sons. Naomi has gone from famine and sorrow to fullness and joy. So you see this book ending almost as Naomi is, is brought in and, and made this major character here. As a matter of fact, this movement has caused some commentators to wonder if maybe the book is not the best name for the book, then maybe it should be Naomi. And the other characters are all working in her story. Well, there's some truth to looking at all sorts of narratives at different levels. You can read Ruth and, and see all sorts of things from Ruth, and then from Boaz, and from Naomi. But <clears throat> there's actually a, a strong hint uh, in verse 13, and just the general layout of the whole Bible, is that the main character of the book of Ruth is the one who's the least named. It's God. God is the main character, as we've said, because it's the book of him providentially working out and getting his people from the time of the judges to David the king. And the clue comes there in verse 13, though. It says, the Lord gave her, Ruth, conception. Now, that's also supposed to make you go back to the beginning of the book. Because how long was Ruth married to Malon for? Ten years. Ten years. Had no children. And the Lord gave her conception. Conception. So this reminds us that this beautiful picture that God was working, even those hard providences of barrenness, for years, both for Ruth and Naomi, for his ultimate glory, for his ultimate purpose, once again. And we're getting insight into this purpose of Ruth, that it is all about the line, because it's going to drive us to David at the end. It's all about the line. And the whole Bible can be read through this lens of the sun, and we've talked about that before. But I'm going to give you today just a snippet of the, the barrenness overcome by the lord in providing sons so genesis chapter 3 the bible story begins adam and eve revolt they commit treason against the living god and so he casts them out of the garden but graciously instead of crushing them and judging them that moment which they deserved he gave them a promise that one day a son would come but it's a son that is not just going to happen no god's going to make it happen and we know this because if you keep reading the story then all of a sudden comes to a man named abram and his wife and at 99 years old god promises abram that his 89 year old wife will bear a son he's like she's been barren she's 90 that's not happening but he trusts god and sure enough it says the lord opened her womb and gave her a son well if you keep reading carefully for this little theme opened her womb you're also going to find out that rebecca was barren isaac prayed to the lord for her to open her womb And then you go on and it says that Leah was not loved because Jacob was too busy loving Rachel. And so the Lord opened her womb. And as we've seen from Leah, comes Judah, comes Boaz, comes David. But God doesn't stop there. He also opened the womb of Rachel and he gave her a son, Joseph. Now God also opens wounds to protect the line of Judah because what does Joseph do? As we said, he went down to Egypt. He was cast down into Egypt. And yet... God sent him down there to preserve his people. So the line of Judah is saved because God opened the womb of Rachel and brought about Joseph. It doesn't stop there. It keeps going. You fast forward and then the next thing you know, you are coming to the time of the judges where Israel's always on the brink of destruction because of their wickedness. And yet God opened a barren woman's room and brought about a Samson to redeem, to deliver his people. And one more time, we read of Samuel's mother whose womb was opened so that Samuel could be the last great judge and prophet and transition the kingdom when he anointed David. From Adam and the promise to David, the king, and ultimately to the true and better David. Because the last womb that the Lord opened was the womb of virgin who bore the king, who bore God come in the flesh. So the whole Bible can be seen as God's work of bringing about his people through opening wombs. Oh, he uses all sorts of natural means too, but that's absolutely what he's doing. And so that ultimate unexpected redeemer needed to come. Because in Adam, we all committed treason against God. But unlike Naomi, it wasn't just a dark providence that happened to us. We also willingly commit treason against God, always. And so the book of Ruth gives us this final hint of this need for an unexpected redeemer in Obed's name. This was fascinating. The ladies name him Obed. It's an interesting little side note. Why did they call him Obed? He's the one who's redeeming Naomi. Well, Obed comes from the Hebrew word for servant. And from the servant comes the king. From the servant Obed will come the king, David. And so you're meant to think, servant to king, where do I find that? Well, Isaiah 52 and 53 is one of the most beautiful places where we read God speaking through the prophet, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, and he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So you're expecting this glorious servant. But what starts off his a glorious declaration turns very quickly, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Why? Why would his form be so marred and so destroyed? Well, you keep reading. It's because this servant of God... Would be despised and rejected by men that he' be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, and he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Because by his wounds, we are healed. The book of Ruth ends with a glorious picture of how the servant Obed gets us to the king David and how the servant came first, not in glory, but in suffering, in wounding, and in crushing, so that he would raise the king with all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that's why Ruth is said in the days of the judges, because the book of Judges ended this way. That in those days, there was no king in the land. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So Ruth takes us from famine to fullness. From kingless rebellion to glorious king ruling over his people. That he has providentially kept through time. That is where the book of Ruth takes us. And that's why we have to see it in its full biblical context. In its full biblical picture. It is a promise to all those who turn to this servant king that you'll hear the same words of blessing. He shall be to you a restorer of life. Would you pray with me?